Hey, True Crime Trucker fans, I have a special announcement. I'm giving away my True Crime Trucker podcast stickers for free. I've done away with my Patreon and have decided to give stickers out to anyone who would like them. All you have to do is reach out to me on social media. You can contact me through Facebook at the True Crime Truckers podcast group. You can send me an email at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send me a message on Instagram at michael.prit81. Just send me a message with your shipping address, and I will mail you out a couple of stickers along with a thank you card at no cost to you. Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. During the quarantine, a lot of folks watched the Netflix documentary, Tiger King, about an eccentric exotic animal farm owner named Joe Exotic, and his supposed murder-for-hire plot. Yet in episode one, they talked of another exotic animal owner briefly, a man who one day snapped, and his actions put a whole community in central Ohio in real danger. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of Terry Thompson and the Zanesville, Ohio Animal Massacre. I'm pretty sure, and I just saw a wolf. I think I just seen one. It looks like a jaguar or a wolf or something. A little before 5 o'clock in the evening of October 18, 2011, a retired school teacher named Sam Kopchik left his home and headed into the paddock behind his house to attend to the horse he had bought nine days earlier from his neighbor Terry Thompson. The half-Arabian Pinto was acting skittish and had moved towards the far corner of the field. On the other side of the flimsy fence separating them from his neighbor Terry Thompson's property, Kopchek noticed that Thompson's horses seemed even more agitated. They were circling and in the center of their troubled orbit there was some kind of a dark shape. 
Only when the shape broke out of the circle could Kopchak see that it was a black bear. Kopchak wasn't overly alarmed by this sight, unexpected as it was, maybe because the bear wasn't too big as black bears go, and maybe because it was running away from him. He decided to put the horse in the barn, go back to the house, and report what he'd seen. He and the horse had taken only a few steps towards the barn when Kopchik saw something else. Just ahead of them on the other side of the fence, facing them, was a fully grown male African lion. Kopchik had lived around here all his life. The road his and Thompson's properties abutted was named Kopchik Road after his great uncle. Before he retired four years ago, he used to teach 7th grade science. He didn't know too much about lions, but he had heard that it was unwise to challenge them by looking them in the eye, and that if you ran away, they had a tendency to chase you. So he settled on what he considered a brisk walking pace for himself and the horse. He only looked back once, when they were about a third of the way to the barn. The lion was in the same place as a moment ago, still on the other side of the fence, though it was quite obvious that the animal could get over the fence any time it wanted to. Inside the barn, Kopchik locked the doors and then telephoned his mother, who was sitting in front of the TV about a hundred yards away, back in his house. He called her and said there was a, quote, major problem. They'd long known that there were strange and unusual animals kept out of sight over the brow of the hill around Thompson's house. Often they could hear lions bellow and roar. They didn't have any idea how many were there, but they assumed that these two runaways must have come from there, so the first thing Miss Kopchik did was to dial her neighbor's number, and she got no answer. She then called 911. She sounded calm when she reported what her son had seen, as though there was really nothing too strange or alarming about a lion and a bear running loose in Ohio. Her son remained trapped in the barn. From there, looking through a north-facing window, he watched the menagerie grow. Along came a wolf and a second bear, this one much larger than the first, and there was the lion he had seen before, now pacing back and forth, and also a lioness, anxiously scuttering around, and then he saw a tiger. He started snarling and went after the horses. Deputy Jonathan Mary was two hours into his shift, serving a court summons a couple of miles away from Zanesville, when the call came through about a lion and a bear on the loose. When he arrived, he could see just inside Thompson's fence a tiger, a black bear, and two lionesses. While he was waiting for Miss Kopchuk to answer the door, he saw a large gray wolf running southbound along the road behind him. He ran to his patrol car and followed the wolf. When it turned up towards a house, Mary got his rifle from the trunk and followed on foot. By now the order had come over the radio. Put the animal down. It was about 80 yards away from him, but it fell at the first shot. After the wolf went down, Mary fired a few more times, making sure. He was inspecting the body when the word came over the radio that some colleagues had a lion cornered near the Thompson's residence. He hurried back. He knew that his colleagues would only have the two standard-issued weapons, and that he was the only one with a rifle. 
Mary drove back up the hill until he came across a deputy running back and forth near Thompson's driveway. Mary didn't know what was going on, so he stopped. As he got out of the car, he grabbed Fur's rifle on the passenger seat, but it snagged on the computer stand, so he left it. That was when he saw the black bear, at first facing him and then running straight towards him. Now he only had his Glock. He got off one shot. The black bear fell about seven feet in front of Mary. He wouldn't even know where the bullet went, though he assumed he must have hit it in the brain. After that, Mary went back for his rifle. An African lioness crawled under the livestock fence and ran south down the road, then headed towards someone's home. So he shot her before she could go farther. Then he turned back, intending to deal with the black bear and a tiger along the roadway, but he was distracted by a cougar heading south. So he followed the cougar into another driveway, where he met a male African lion coming from the other way. He shot the lion, while some other deputies shot the cougar. Soon he was instructed to patrol the border between Thompson's property and Interstate 70, and over the evening he shot another wolf, two more lions, a tiger, and later on, after its hiding place was revealed by a fireman's thermal imaging camera, a grizzly bear. Sheriff Matt Lutz had already hung up his uniform and finished his dinner when, at around 5.20 p.m., he got the call reporting that Terry Thompson had an animal out. It didn't seem that big a deal. They all knew Thompson had animals, and they'd been called out there again and again, mostly for loose horses. Occasionally there were reports of more unusual creatures running free, but nothing too bad had ever happened. In the 15 minutes it took him to get to the scene, as the reports he was receiving over the radio escalated, the seriousness and strangeness became clear. Lutz instructed that if there were any animals outside Thompson's property, they needed to be shot. There was an apartment building just on the other side of the interstate that bordered Thompson's land, and maybe a mile away was a school soccer game kids yelling and screaming in the open air. By the time he got there, the culling had begun. Nobody yet knew where Thompson was, and so there was a concern for his safety. Maybe the animals had somehow busted out and he was injured, in need of help. After Deputy Mary headed south down the road in pursuit of a wolf, Sergeant Steve Blake, who had been first on the scene, decided he could drive up to Thompson's house. As he neared the farm buildings, he saw more animals. Their cages had either been cut through or left open. Blake sounded his horn outside Thompson's house, but there was no response. So he drove back, and at the foot of the drive, he met John Moore, the caretaker who regularly fed the animals, and had been alerted by a phone call from someone in the neighborhood. Together they returned to the house, finding nothing but two monkeys and a dog in cages. But on their way back to the road, Moore spotted a body near the barn. A white tiger appeared to be eating it, and they couldn't get closer.
40 miles away at the Columbus Zoo, an event was being held for the International Rhino Foundation, and the zoo was throwing a cocktail party on the grounds of the polar bear exhibit. One of the vets came up to Tan Stolf, the zoo's chief operating officer. She said, We have to go. Terry Thompson's animals are out. Stolf, who had moved to Columbus only 18 months earlier, didn't know who Thompson was, but others did. Dr. Michael Berry, the zoo's director of animal health, had been up at Thompson's property to inspect his large private collection of animals in 2008, accompanying an ATF raid that eventually led to Thompson's imprisonment for a year on gun charges. Though ultimately no action was taken concerning the animals after Thompson moved to improve their facilities. That evening, the zoo assembled its capture and recovery team, armed with both tranquilizer dart guns and regular weapons, and set out for Zanesville. Meanwhile, at the gateway of Thompson's property, the police were wondering how many animals might be loose. John Moore mentally ran through the rows of cages he would feed. At first, the number of animals he came up with was 48. But then his fiancée arrived. She also helped with the feeding and reminded him of some recent arrivals. The final total was 56. That's when Moore told Deputy Jeff LeCoque, something that would later appear in the official police report and came to be taken as a kind of explanation for what had happened, albeit one that prompted many further questions. Moore said that he had last spoken with Thompson at 9 o'clock the previous evening, and that Thompson, who was 62, had told him about a letter he had received from an unnamed author, saying that his wife Marion had been unfaithful. Thompson had only returned from his prison sentence three weeks before. Quote, that's when Terry actually goes to Moore and asks him about Marion having cheated on him while he was in prison. Unquote said Deputy Lecoque. Quote, and the answer, the way I recall, was that he didn't know whether she did or she didn't. And then Terry makes this statement back to him. Quote, well, I have a plan to find out, and you'll know when it happens, unquote. When Deputy Todd Canaval, who normally heads up the drug squad, arrived at the scene, Sergeant Blake told him about the body that they had spotted. I think it's Terry, he said, but I don't know. They needed to find out for sure, and see whether the person might still be alive. By now, they had also decided that they would need to neutralize all the animals that were loose, even those still on Thompson's property, so they formed a shooting party. Blake drove Canaveral's Silverado crew cab, and four others sat on the bed of the truck behind him so that they wouldn't have to fire out of the windows. Deputy Tony Angelo, a sniper on their SWAT team, had a bolt-action rifle. Deputy Ryan Paisley had a 9mm HK MP5 submachine gun. Deputy Jay Lawhorn and Canaval had assault rifles. As they pulled up between the barn and a row of cages, two tigers started out of the barn towards them. The animals were only about 10 or 12 feet away and were put down. From where they were, they could see the man's body flat on its back. The white tiger was atop him. Canaveral reported back to the sheriff that, whether the body was Thompson's or someone else's, it was deceased. At 6.04 p.m., Lutz shared this information on the police radio. 
quote, okay, we have located the owner, code 16, dead on arrival. Possible 58, suicide. Unknown for sure on that, here in the field, unquote. That was all the five of them could learn for now because they were urgently redeployed to the southern end of the property where some cats had been spotted readying to cross the boundary fence. First, they had to deal with the male African lion that managed to run between some junk cars after the first shot. There were dozens and dozens of old cars and RVs and tractors parked in clumps of rusted metal around the hillside, weeds growing around them. As they moved towards other escapees spread over the hillside, they used the truck to give themselves elevation, trying to engage the animals from 70 to 100 yards away, firing on them two at a time until they went down. Canaveral's tactic was to shoot for the head a couple of times and then move on to the body and keep putting rounds into it. After a while, the four shooters ran low on ammo and called for more and eventually they headed back towards where the body was. The white tiger had gone. Nearby they found bolt cutters and a stainless steel Ruger three fifty seven Magnum revolver. The cause of death seemed to be a gunshot to the head. One detail Sheriff Lutz chose to release to the press at the time was that there was a sizable laceration on Thompson's head that was consistent with the big cat's bite. Deliberately or not, he seemed to imply that Thompson's body was, aside from the gunshot wound suggesting a barrel placed in the mouth, otherwise fairly untouched. It wasn't quite that straightforward. He had been dragged. It looked like by an arm, and his pants were pulled down, and he had been chewed on. There were also pieces of raw chicken scattered around near the body, Apparently, Tom Stahl theorized that he wanted the animals to eat him. All evening it went on, the slaughter. Encounters with animals that would normally have been remembered for a lifetime were forgotten moments later as the next came along. Somehow no one was hurt. Mr. Kochek, forgotten in his barn, safely managed to make his way unescorted back to his house at nightfall. Up near the house, where no media could see them, the officers laid the dead animals out in rows, by species, to ease the counting. By the time the Columbus Zoo team had arrived at the holding area, it was dark. They were told that it wasn't safe for them to try to tranquilize anything because so many animals were circulating and others were scattering outwards. Even when a tranquilizer dose is successfully administered, it needs about ten minutes to take effect and great care is required to establish that it has done so, which is impossible with so many animals running around. When the zoo people returned to the site at 5.30 the next morning, they had been joined by Jack Hanna. Hanna, famous for his TV show and his appearance on shows like David Letterman, established his career at the Columbus Zoo and remains its director emeritus. After the sheriff spoke with Hannah and talked him through what happened, he gave interview after interview. It probably made all the difference. Hannah was a trusted animal advocate, and as he emotionally articulated the pain at the death that had taken place, his unequivocal insistence that the sheriff's department had no other option than to act as they did served as a powerful antidote to the other obvious narrative. 
that a thoughtless small-town law enforcement brigade had murdered dozens of noble beasts because they were too dumb and trigger-happy to think of a better alternative. Jack Hanna, a world-renowned wildlife expert, can weigh in a little bit more on this debate right now and the, and the argument about shoot to kill. Jack, I know you've been very passionate about this today, and your side of the, of the debate is what? Well, you know, at the end of the day, it's very simple what's happened here. It's a tragedy. 30, 40, 40-something animals have lost their lives up there, laying there. They've just been buried. Uh, and uh, the only good thing come out of this is get this bill passed where people cannot go to these auctions and buy these animals. They'll be shut down. I know. I've talked to the governor. We can't have people like this behind us here with still abominable conditions, according to the people that work for me. They saw back there. This cannot continue. This has to be stopped. The point is, the bill was signed by Governor Strickland. I realize that. Governor Casey appointed a committee immediately we got in office to try and figure this whole thing out. We were within several weeks of doing this. Obviously, this tragedy happened. He's been in meetings all day to try and push this thing through here. We do not want to, I repeat, we do not want to affect private breeders who spend tens of thousands of dollars helping the zoological world on a legal basis and spend lots of money to help us breed animals. We're not, there's a very few of those in the state, by the way. We will have to shut down folks like this right and left here, I guess, in Ohio. There's quite a few of these. We have to get these things stopped so we don't have to go through this tragedy again today where these animals gave their lives uh, for who knows why. 49 animals would be confirmed dead. 18 tigers, 6 black bears, 2 grizzly bears, 2 wolves, 1 baboon, 3 mountain lions, 9 male lions, and 8 lionesses. There was now only one unaccounted for. A macaque. Though no trace would be found of it, dead or alive, it was eventually decided that it had most likely been eaten by one of the cats. Six of Terry Thompson's animals survived. Three were leopards, still in their cages. Two more were the macaques kept in the living room of the house in two small bird cages. And finally, out back near an empty swimming pool was a small grizzly bear, also in a bird cage. The house itself was disgusting. Quote, it was the most horrific smells, said Stolf. Garbage and feces, garbage bags filled with garbage that were knocked over, and the filth. I saw a pair of pants on the ground, and the belt was twine. It was very sad to see how someone clearly had lost their mind. There are no sane people that would live in those conditions, unquote. Thompson's wife Marion arrived around lunchtime. She had to be convinced that the survivors should be taken to the zoo for safekeeping. Marion insisted on removing the macaques from their cage herself, waving off the zoo personnel's advice about the risk she was taking. She would explain that she had spent $30,000 buying them, and that she used to sleep with the young female. Her bond with them certainly seemed real, before she opened the cage, she sang to them a lullaby, and they clung to her as she took them one by one to their carriers. It was decided that the dead animals be buried there and then on the property. Mrs. Thompson chose the spot. A big digger was brought in and a hole was dug maybe 30 feet deep. The animals were scooped by the bucket load, placed in the hole and the earth backhoed over them. Thompson's body was taken from the scene for an autopsy at the Licking County Coroner's, where it revealed a few of its secrets. 
At death, Terry William Thompson was 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed 174 pounds. He had been wearing a black t-shirt, blue jeans, and white briefs. His gallbladder had been removed earlier in life and he was suffering from severe arthrosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The only notable substance in his blood was Benadryl. There was a gray powder residue on his left hand that appeared to be from the gun being fired. The wounds mentioned in the autopsy report, aside from the gunshot wound, began with a two and a quarter inch vertical laceration on the right lower forehead and along the spine of the nose. Twenty-one other injuries or clusters of injuries were detailed just on the head and neck, the site of the most widespread damage. Others were noted on his torso and legs. And then there was what the coroner described like this, a five and three-quarter inch by four inch gaping laceration involving the pubic region and bilateral medial thighs with an absence of genitalia, exposure of the pubic bones and adjacent soft tissue. Or, to spell it out, by the time his body was recovered, no part of his external genitalia remained. Where they should have been, there was nothing but a raw gap. That was Terry Thompson's final grotesque parting gift, a last meal for one of his animals, sometime before it, too, met its death by a bullet on the sad night of October 18, 2011, near Zanesville, Ohio. Thompson was a troubled man. Some said that he was plagued by PTSD from his time in Vietnam, and it's clear from the accounts of the condition of his farm that he was mentally unwell. That coupled with the suspicion that his wife was being unfaithful was a powder keg waiting to go off. The fact that no one was injured besides Terry Thompson himself was nothing short of a miracle. In the following months after the tragedy, then-Ohio Governor John Kasich enacted the Dangerous Wild Animal Law in Ohio. It bans the ownership and sale of wild and exotic animals in the state. However, the people who owned these animals before the law went into effect were grandfathered in and did not have to turn over their animals. And with the lax laws on ownership beforehand, no one really knows how many reside in Ohio. Estimates go anywhere from in the hundreds to the thousands. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash truecrimetruckers slash. There you can browse the bazaar, 
where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors, as well as browse other shows on the Age of Radio Syndicate. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.